0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. Today we are here with Roger Schoenfeld, who works at Ithaca, an organization that provides academic strategic guidance and access to information, where he serves as the director of libraries, scholarly communication, and museums. So we'll be discussing his book um, that he wrote with Deanna Markham called Along Came Google, The History of Library Digitization. So. Probably most of the world is familiar with Google, but perhaps not with their goal and pursuit of tapping into the age old dream of creating a universal library. And this book is really fascinating to read, like the evolution of libraries and publishers and corporations, sort of like as technology was being decided um, and used over the past few decades. So maybe to start off, I'm curious about sort of where did the idea for this book come from and how did you come to write it um, together with Deanna? Well,
1: Deanna was talking to our, um, our wonderful editor Peter Docherty some some years ago. Peter had um, edited actually my uh, first first book, which is a history of JSTOR's development, and um, and they were talking about what it would look like to write a piece about the future of libraries, and um, and that was kind of the seed that got planted. And Deanna and I spent a lot of time kind of talking talking about that and we we sort of decided that uh while we we weren't necessarily prepared to opine on you know such a big topic as the future of libraries a history of this absolutely instrumental initiative that deeply informs the future of libraries and and many other things as well of course was uh, was was something that we we felt we could we could try to tackle so that was that was actually the the original um Uh, Story and for myself, I've I've um, I've been for a long time now interested in how knowledge gets preserved and transmitted from generation to generation, and so for me this is a a really interesting episode in the history of preservation. This uh, you you know this effort that human societies seem to have just a a kind of basic um, need to try to share. Share what they've learned with their with their successors, and uh, and you know now now of course we do that in a very technology inter- uh, mediated way.
0: Yeah, it almost it also almost feels like a very timely book, given how like important like digital resources are during like the pandemic and shutdowns. Um, so, I guess, what was it like to write this book like during this time in particular?
1: Well, we we'd actually done I think all of the original research before the pandemic struck so we had done um interviews with you know friends and colleagues and uh, you know other parties uh, in the in the in the project um uh in you know in, before the pandemic but um yeah finalizing things doing page proofs writing you know, developing the index all of that was uh was uh it was definitely um uh during during the lockdowns and and during the pandemic but i, I think I think you know at the at the most basic level, Deanna and I have have collaborated and worked together for many years and, and known each other for many years. So it was a great, you know, we've we we work easily together, and it was it's just every every bit of the process has been a a, a joy to collaborate with um with her.
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess getting into like the more meat of the book, maybe like as a setup, we could or maybe I could ask like what was sort of like the role of the library like before digitization. And sort of how did that sort of evolve and change Um, even like beyond Google, but just like how sort of technology sort of influenced and sort of changed the role of like what a library is and what it does.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we, we go back through um, some of, some, some of the history of the research libraries, especially in the United States um, over the past, you know, 100, 120 some years. And, um, one of the one of the things that we we really kind of observed as we went back through that history was that research libraries have been using whatever the most advanced technology of the day has been to advance this. You know, you referred before to this dream of universal access, to advance this dream of universal access. So whether it was something as simple as um, developing the networks that would allow one library to share physical books with another library, all of the infrastructure, the, the, the information about who owns what that was necessary to do that. So we kind of go through some of those early earlier um, episodes in, in technology and uh, in technology in, in in the context of research libraries. And so we don't really see an absolute like pre-technology post-technology kind of split. I think that's really one of the things that's really important uh, to to try to emphasize in I I do think that what we see is this growing dynamic over the past 20 25 30 years. Where more and more of the original content, uh, more more and more of the of the books, of the journals, of the newspapers, the materials that libraries collect have become digitally available, and and that's had a profound impact on library work, uh, the nature of the of the actual labor that goes into running a library, but but also the relationship between libraries and their suppliers, the you know, publishers and, and and other kinds of vendors um the nature of the services that are expected of the libraries by their user communities. And so I think we've seen, you know, certainly over the you know over over the last decade or two um, a real sense that some of the fairly fundamental underpinnings of what it means to be a library have really have really shifted. And you know, so that has to do with um, new kinds of work practices, new kinds of expertise, new kinds of, um, relationships with one another and with, with Mm -hmm. vendors and publishers. But it also has to do with, you know, looking at what is, what is the, what's essential, what's at the core, what has remained. And I think, I think in that respect, the idea that we need expertise and, um, knowledge about information and how it's how it's organized and used remains, you know, just as, just as true as it's ever been.
0: Yeah. I guess that also, that kind of makes me wonder in the, in the pursuit of getting to that universal library. Um, and like, given the, given that there are probably always relationships between like libraries and publishers and like technology. Um, I just basically like wonder what sort of infrastructure had been missing before that sort of prevented um, like either digitization or sort of creating that platform or community that would allow for um, like that universal library sharing of information and resources. Just because like, I guess, uh, and you mentioned this in the book that like a digitized book doesn't necessarily mean a digitized library and like digital doesn't mean that it's free. Um, So I guess like what sort of like, what restrictions had existed before that sort of either prevented libraries and publishers and technologists to have that? Or maybe even ask a different way, like what sort of made Google mm, more poised to move forward with like book digitization and creating that infrastructure?
1: Yeah, no, so I I think what you're, you know, what you're getting at, the, the fact here is that Google didn't invent the idea of digitizing (laughs) books, digitizing library collections. And librarians themselves and all sorts of technologists and advocates and of one sort or another had been not just advocating for digitizing these collections, but actually taking meaningful steps to get books scanned. And you know, make them more widely available. As a result, so we point in the in the book to a number of significant undertakings. Carnegie Mellon had a significant undertaking. Um, uh, the, the Internet Archive had a significant undertaking. Many individual libraries themselves, uh, not at a system wide level, but just in terms of their own books, were were making efforts to scan and 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 and, and provide access to them. So what what was what was missing? was a, f- a few things. What shifted were a few things. So looking backwards, we can see pretty clearly that that the kind of catalyst to say, we're going to do this. We have a big goal, and it's a transformative goal, and it could leave um, our the our entire sector different than it was before. And we're not going to pursue it incrementally. We're going to pursue it suddenly and ambitiously that kind of catalytic decision to proceed at scale no one was positioned to take that kind of decision previously and google brought not just capital right i mean they certainly invested millions and millions of dollars but not just capital they brought an attitude and a minds a mindset that that they were going to not just get done this this sector transformative project but get it done quickly get it done not just within our lifetimes, get it done while we all still have the same job we currently have, like in the next five or 10 years. And that was a, that, that you know, they they cherry picked the libraries that would work with them, right? They didn't say we have to have a perfectly inclusive approach. They didn't say we have to have a perfectly equitable approach. They didn't say we have to have a, they said, we want, we want to get as many books as we can from some of the best libraries we can find. And let's figure out the right way to achieve that, sort of single minded goal and and no one had ever no one had ever tried it like that before, so you know we we look back comparatively at some of these other efforts at you know let's digitize a million books that was one project let's have a digital library federation of some of the you know several dozen major libraries that was another uh, major initiative these were great efforts i mean we're not we're not here to beat up on them in, in any way um, in fact in fact they did a lot to prepare the research libraries to be ready to work with Google when Google showed up. But no one had ever framed out a goal, brought to bear the money. And there were also some engineering uh, uh, innovations that Google brought as well. But I think in in some ways, those are almost almost secondary.
0: So it sounds like what you're saying was the, like work and efforts that libraries and consortias had been doing before Google came along, sort of primed um, them to either work with Google or for it to be easy, easier to initiate that um, digitization project. Is that, is that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, leaders had thought about everything from copyright issues uh, to scanning workflows, they had a sense of preservation challenges. Um, they understood how hard it was to achieve a goal like this. And so when this third party showed up, when Google showed up, they could they could appreciate what it was that Google was offering and make decisions about whether it made sense for them to participate with with some amount of of background and and as we chronicle in, In in the book, there were some there actually were cases where the library community really held Google accountable to a set of standards. They said, you know, the quality has to be a certain to to a certain level, and you know, the outputs have to achieve a certain um, uh, 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 you know level of quality. and And I think that I think that's maybe an underappreciated part. It it definitely wasn't that Google just came in, had a plan, signed up the libraries, and did the work. I mean, especially with the University of Michigan, but certainly with some of the others as well, this was really a partnership, and all the parties brought knowledge and um, uh, expertise to the to the puzzle. Google's unique role was that it was a catalyst.
0: I thought it was really interesting that um, it seems like even libraries were sort of split whether or not they were willing to work with Google and like some other, other libraries were like more weary to work with like a corporate organization, but it is also really, it's really cool and like almost empowering to know that like, oh, granted these are huge libraries, like the university of Michigan demanding quality. So it's not like it's a small, a small research library. It's like literally one of the uh, huge R01 university, but I guess that makes me, almost curious, like what were some of the differences in motive between like libraries who were more willing to work with Google and those that weren't or sort of who, who and why um, were some of these, these partnerships um, that were formed and sort of like, who, who was allowed, like, I guess what I'm asking is like, who was allowed to be at like these like negotiating tables, like, yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I I guess I guess one of the things that might be worth saying is that when I look across many of the partners that Google developed, many of the partnerships that Google developed, many of the individuals involved were at some basic level fairly pragmatic. So, you know, you in in higher education you have uh, as anywhere, you have a spectrum, but in higher education, there are in 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 the research libraries and some of the major universities that that have research libraries. Um, you know, there's certainly a lot of people for whom Google would not have been uh, the first choice partner. Okay, and 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 I think it's really important today. I mean, we have to realize today in 2021 what Google stands for today and the way that google is seen today is not the google that they were engaging with when the, when the project was was developing right the google of today you know people are wary of surveillance capitalism the google of today people are concerned about um, internet, oligopolies, the Google of today. People are, you know, concerned about the effect of Silicon Valley giants on American democracy, right? I mean, th- these are some of the issues that some people, anyway, think about when they think about uh, Google and, and 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 some of the other major technology companies today. But you know, fifteen years ago, Google was still kind of a startup. It was still in its, you know, don't be evil mode, um, and. And And yet, even at the time, I think there were a lot of individuals who were skeptical of this is a profit-seeking company, this is a startup, this is a a, a technology this is a corporation. This is not this is not of the academy. this is not of the library. They don't have our values, they don't have our incentives, you know, et cetera. So So you had a range of folks. You had some folks who said who would say, yes, that's true." Uh, Paul Courant is a great example of this. He, Whether he would fully agree with this, he was Michigan's library director and sometime provost, and Paul Courant would say, you know, maybe that was true, but who else is going to get this transformative project done? I don't see anyone else. And so um, he has this sort of famous, uh, I, I at least um, uh, we, we quoted this line. I won't say it's famous. We're, we've tried to make it famous. Uh, this This line where he said, you know um being in bed with Google is better than sleeping alone was the way that he the way that he um, articulated it at the time and uh you know um I think that was I think there were a lot of people who who would have fallen into a category like that. There were also individuals who were deeply concerned about the potential corporate enclosure of this you know sort of commons, this sort of public asset that was housed in you know these public and not for- profit Organizations, these research libraries, and we're deeply concerned. Um, and this comes out with the with the lawsuit and some of the dynamics around that, which which we can talk about if you'd like. But we're deeply concerned um, about you know the potential enclosure of of of, of our cultural heritage. Um, so there were kind of an array of an array of perspectives for for sure.
0: Yeah, I think we'll definitely talk about the the copyright suit um but i guess for for now i'm i guess i'm based on what you said i guess i'm curious as to how like the interests were sort of like decided like at like a library institutional level at like a google corporation level but also like at a at a publisher level because they're like a huge part of um like the book digitization process and like the intellectual property ownership
1: yeah so um so the decision-making at the institutions was, um, was tricky. Um, so in some cases, it was, you know, um, leaders were, uh, in, in, in the university sector, leaders were accused of, you know, bypassing faculty governance norms, things like that. There were some, some cases like that. But, um, but because of the way that the, the initial partnerships were negotiated uh, under NDA, uh, Google Google insisted that they be negotiated uh, in secrecy, and so as a result, um, the decision making tended to be pretty centralized and um, uh, maybe more centralized than certain kinds of university decisions uh, often are. So, so I think that's that's just something to you know that's kind of the basic context in in the universities. Um, in terms of in terms of the publishers, you know, it was a it was it was such an interesting dynamic around, around how that developed. So, so among the publishers, um, Google started out by saying, basically saying Amazon has a stranglehold on, on book sales online, right? All the, you know, this was the era when I think, you know, maybe borders was going out of business and, you know, there was great concern about independent bookstores and, and and so forth as Amazon sort of um, uh, power had, had grown in 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 that regard. And Google said, we're going to create a bookstore. We're going to sell your books for you and, you know, your digital books. And so, you know, there, there was a, there was Google positioned itself basically as the scrappy startup versus Amazon's monopoly. That was the, that was the implicit positioning. But at the very same time, Google was negotiating with the libraries in secret to scan all of these books, many of which were still in copyright. And as far as we can tell, completely unbeknownst to the publishers. And so Google was developing and announcing this publisher deal while negotiating in secret this library deal. And so it was, a, it was actually um, strategically a very interesting choice that they made in terms of how to do that um, and, and so forth. Publishers, understandably, were very excited about Google giving them a, a, an alternative to to Amazon. Um, but as they as the news about the library digitization project came out, and questions were raised about, well, what what does this mean for copyright? What does this mean for uh, protecting our intellectual property? Um, you, you know, there were there were quite a number of. Uh, you know, that was when things began to go sour. That was when things began to go sour.
0: Yeah, it it almost makes me feel like at least now it almost feels like there is like this very real difference in motive and agenda between libraries and publishers. Um, I wonder if that was something that was always true or if that was just even more highlighted um, by like digitization and by Google sort of pitting them literally against each other in this in this situation of um, making or making a deal with publishers, but then secretly making a deal with libraries.
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting to think about that as sort of pitting pitting these two parties against one another. I mean, libraries and publishers have always had um, both a symbiotic and a complicated relationship in in, in a lot of different ways. Um, and I guess, uh, y- you, know, um, the result of this set of efforts, the result of the way this initiative came together was that there did develop a strong uh, we'll query, how strong, a strong, uh, alternative to Amazon. Uh, I don't think, I don't think Google book sells anything close to the volume that, that Kindle uh, uh, does as, uh, as, as a, as a counterexample. Um, but at the same time, whatever goodwill there might've been there and whatever, um, you know, universal library there might have been that could both accommodate publishers visions of selling their, um, their wares and libraries visions of expanding access, you know there 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 are other ways this could have developed, right? There could have been um, a, a model that that brought some or all of these things together. But you know, I I also I also understand why um, a corporation trying to think not about the kind of socially optimal solution. The theoretical and socially optimal solution, but how to actually make tangible progress in certain goals that they had set for themselves uh, could end up pursuing a strategy like this one i 'm certainly not here to here to um, ass- assess whether it was the, the the best or the right strategy just i 'll only point out that it was a strategy not certainly not the only option that could have could have existed
0: mm. I guess I'm I'm curious as to, since you are also in like the, like you work with publishers all the time and you work with universities all the time. I'm just curious as to what um, you think like could have been like a better strategy for sort of having everyone's sort of missions and goals be maybe more aligned or like what, I mean, and this this might be, this is definitely beyond the scope of the book, but I guess I'm just curious um, sort of what, like an ideal path moving forward could, could look like um, for publishers and libraries to be more on the same page than maybe they seem to be now in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I'll just, I'll just throw an idea out there. I'm not, I'm not going to suggest this is the, the best one, right? oh, Of course. <laughs> but if you could think about ways to combine the publisher's interests in Monetizing, developing a, a monetization uh, scheme for their, uh, you know, for their materials. At the same time, you think about libraries' desire to make everything more widely available than it previously has been. Like, if you sort of take those two interests in the in the puzzle, um, I, you know, I, I think you can imagine a whole lot of different ways uh, that a that a third party. Especially a technology product organization, third party, could develop, uh, uh, develop an offering. I, I think the you know in in a way the challenge here is that um it has been you, you know we it's really hard to think past the existing paradigms. So the paradigm for the publishers and in Google's work with the publishers was how do we sell individual books to end users. Right, um, and the paradigm for the digitization project was all about search and discovery, and access was was secondary. It was all about like G- Google feeding more things into the search engine and so um, and so you know that's not really the paradigm neither one of those is really the right paradigm for knowledge, right. Um, it was just, it was just trying to figure out, you know, how do we take an incremental step forward in each of these two areas? Um, and I, and I think, and, you know, I, I think, I think that was, um, you know, maybe someone else will, will, you know, come up with a new formula. Um, I, yeah, who, who knows?
0: Yeah. That's interesting to, especially like given what you said about sort of Google being like a catalyst and sort of quickly doing things. Um, it's interesting that they ended up sort of having to like, be like, oh, we can't actually make these huge revolutions. We sort of have to meet publishers and libraries where they are and sort of make these concessions for like a stepping stone and like work within, work within the model and paradigm. Um, and I guess some of that too also came from that, uh, like the copyright um, settlement that ended up happening. So maybe we could talk about um, cause there, there was like a proposed settlement between, um, copyright and ownership, um, between publishers and authors and Google. And then there ended up being like a different, a different type of settlement, um, decided by the, the courts. So maybe, um, if you could describe sort of like what almost was, and then sort of the ramifications of what ended up happening with that, uh, lawsuit.
1: Sure. Well, um, what almost was, was that the publishers and Google reached a settlement agreement. They agreed to settle the lawsuit. So the publisher, maybe I should say the the publishers sued Google because they didn't like their materials being scanned and made available in any way, shape or form without their, uh, without their, you know, without their assent. Um, and so... Uh, you know, the lawsuit proceeded to a certain point and there were settlement talks and the settlement talks were really, really ambitious. What they came up with was really ambitious. They said, instead of just figuring out, you know, okay, Google will pay us X million dollars and we'll go away. Why don't we use the, the fact that this is a class action lawsuit? So it was filed as a class action lawsuit, which meant that all of the, um, you know, substantially, all of the publishers were involved, right? It wasn't just one or two or three of the big ones. Uh, they were, and and, I, and I'm sorry, I'm using the term class action, but what I mean to say is they represented all of the all of the publishers. The way it was, the structure was was that it represented all of the publishers, and and so the idea was, what if we sold this thing that you've digitized? What if we took this thing that you've built that that, that Google and the libraries have built, and that Google controls? And what if we sold that? We made it available through libraries all over the country, and we could we could license it, we could sell it, we could monetize it. Um, and there was a whole plan for how that could work, and how and I mean, without go, going too deep into the details, there was a whole plan and how that that could work. And it it was really exciting for for some people in terms of the expansion of access that this project that the digitization project could have yielded. This was the most exciting development in the whole thing. It was no longer just about out of copyright materials. It was no longer about just displaying a snippet of search results. All of a sudden, it was like access to the the substantial share of this digital library, this, this universal library. And it could be could be made available for you know, the, low, the low price of you know, whatever it might have been, but it would but it would be much more widely available as a result. What ended up happening was twofold. One was there were a lot of objections, okay? Objections that um, have to be seen in the context of what I was talking about before around concerns about uh, sort of corporate enclosure, of our cultural heritage concerns about the fact that Google was going to uh, be the, the purveyor of this product and this service, this digital library. And, um, and so there were objections just on the basis that, well, if it was, uh, you know, a not for profit organization, if it was the library of Congress, if it was, uh, you know, whoever, that would be okay. But because it's Google, we, we fear that, corporate control. Um, and and there was a second concern, which was related to that, which was that Google, because of the nature of this settlement agreement, would be the only one who not only had the digitized files, but would be the only one who could sell them, who, because of the settlement agreement, had the, the right to sell them. And that raised concerns, legal concerns about whether that was going to enable Google to monopolize this resource, which of course connected back in some people's minds to this basic concern about corporate control. But when the Justice Department um, weighed in on the settlement agreement, the Justice Department said, this would be a monopoly. We have concerns from an antitrust perspective. And that was what ultimately scuttled that version of the settlement.
0: So I guess what ended up, because because they already had digitized all these books and like they were sort of poised and ready to sort of release this huge. Not obviously it wasn't a universal library yet. There's still there's still much that remains to be digitized and a part of the collection. But I guess sort of what sort of came out of out of that um, settlement. Um, so like what what could libraries access or what could publishers still. Um, share with google and yeah i'm not asking this question well but i guess like what what was sort of like were the ramifications of of like a a publicly available um book collection or what sort of or how did libraries respond to um that silver settlement not being what they expected it to be
1: yeah so um so the the result tangibly was that um was that out of copyright materials could be made publicly available, and it, there's more nuance to this. But out of copyright materials could be made publicly available, and those that remained in copyright couldn't. That was the essential, the essence of, of where things landed. Google, I believe, paid some damages, uh, um, made a payment, and um, and the um, and so the libraries didn't really have. Uh, anything more than the out of copyright materials from an access perspective at at first. Um, now, that was really disappointing. As as I as I was articulating before a moment ago, that was really disappointing. But at the same time, I think for some leaders in the library community, it may have been a bit of a relief. I mean, let's let's face it. If all of a sudden you're you know, the vast majority of your print collection is available digitally. I think that was starting to raise some questions for some leading thinkers in the library sector about what what would this mean for our work? Like, could we pivot our services? Could we, you know, repoint our employees, our workers um, quickly enough to adapt or would that actually be kind of detrimental to the ongoing role of the, of the library? So I think those conversations were definitely taking place at the time. I mean, some people might have said, look, it's still good to have access. Some people might have said, oh, maybe it's better if the Settlement agreement doesn't go through, I you know, but but my point is there were concerns. There were definitely concerns. Um, and, and there were other people who were, you know, definitely adamant ab- about it. Now, the library community, something that I do want to make sure we have a chance to talk about, the library community, um, in, in the midst of all of this back and forth about will there be a settlement agreement, won't there be a settlement agreement, what kind of settlement agreement might there be, the library community um, came together and said, we're going to take control of these files. And uh, that resulted in, uh, and and that was the result of a set of provisions that that the original partner libraries negotiated with Google that, um, that their only real payment for participating in the digitization project was that they were going to get a copy of the digital files, the scans, right? And with those scans, they could offer whatever services they wanted to offer as long as it didn't directly compete with Google in, in a certain set of, of areas. And so while all this back and forth was going on around, would, would there be a settlement, wouldn't there be a settlement, the library community got itself together and founded something called HathiTrust. And um, and HathiTrust was an effort to take back control of these files. Of, of I mean, they already had control of the files, but sort of assert the 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 benefits that came with the control of the files. And they started to think about, okay, if there isn't going to be universal access or something approaching universal access, if we as not-for-profit and public institutions have control of these materials, how can we expand the amount of access in various steady methodical ways? And so HathiTrust has had a really terrific track record of, you know, in a a bunch of specific areas and opportunistically, in some cases, steadily expanding access to more and more of those digitized books.
0: Yeah. And I feel like between like HathiTrust and like also the Digital Public Library of America, I think those seem to have both come out of um, this um, effort of Google or like sort of like, I, I wouldn't say like anti-Google, but sort of like in opposition to at least, uh, if not at least from a a business or marketing structure, obviously um, both of these um, organizations are more community-led and not-for-profit rather than uh, a corporation like Google. So I guess I'm I'm almost curious as to how how those collaborations were sort of unique and almost like more successful than maybe prior library-led attempts or sort of like how they really came to have like a strong and secure strategic direction in sort of like the wake of um, these settlements?
1: Yeah, so um, so I, I'm not sure if it's fair to say that everything that came out of this was was more successful than than everything that came before it. I, 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 I understand why, you know, I, I can see the um, where, where that might appear to be the case, but I, I, I guess I would offer a little bit of caution a, a, about that. I think that what, what HathiTrust, um, the reason why Hathi Trust was successful, and this, this, this is, this is maybe a, an easier way to kind of, um, talk about it, is that, is that HathiTrust, um, first of all, they had the benefit of all of these files, right? So they had the benefit of the millions of books and the probably tens of millions of dollars of investment that had gone into digitizing them um, as an asset at the very beginning, right? So they weren't starting by having to capital. They they were very well capitalized, if you want to think about it that way, with this core asset of all of these digitized materials. So, so that was one thing that was going in their favor. The other thing that was going in their favor was that perhaps because they had learned from the way that Google acted, some of the library leaders who were involved in the founding of Houghttie Trust founded it in spite of whatever opposition there may have been to moving forward with it and so this was the kind of the second time in this story we tell see, there's two times in the story where the library community doesn't Follow all of its values. Doesn't act inclusively. Doesn't have you know every library gets a vote. Like where there were two times in this history, two important times where there was a departure from that. One was the original decision, decisions to partner with Google on the digitization initiative, and the second was the founding of HathiTrust. Trust. And. There was a lot of discussions around and around and around and around about whether HathiTrust trust was necessary. Should we have a shared uh, digital platform? Um, if so, who would lead it? Where would it live? How, what would it, you know? All of that stuff, and uh, that decision—you can never say it couldn't have been made inclusively. But at a certain point, a certain set of leaders lost patience with the decision-making process and went ahead and And basically um, forced it into being and um and in retrospect, hottie Trust is remembered as a community source initiative it's re- it's remembered it's understood the rhetoric around it is that it's of the community, but in fact, HathiTrust Trust was founded not of the community broadly but of a a few leaders acting in what they believed was the the best interests of the community, notwithstanding whatever Mm -hmm. barriers they may have faced.
0: Yeah. But even since then, it it has seemed like it's, it's grown, you know, if it started off as this small group of, um, leaders who had the community's interest in mind, but it's remembered as something that, um, is a community led project that almost sounds like it, they were sort of right in that, in that, um, decision to put it together.
1: Yeah. And, um, and, and or uh, at least had I, the
0: foresight, maybe, maybe they weren't right, but, uh, they had like a vision.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is, you know, I think this is one of those cases where what resulted clearly has been in the benefit of the community. I don't, I don't think anyone could, could really argue that. So HathiTrust over the course of time has had um, substantial positive impact for individuals with print disabilities. They've um, gone through some substantial initiatives around government documents, uh, making government documents more widely available. Uh, They've done extensive work to review the copyright status of the materials under their purview and made a lot of them available based on a, a manual copyright review rather than the automated approaches that Google, um, had been taking. Um, and then of course, uh, during the pandemic, they HathiTrust launched, uh, what was then an unprecedented initiative to provide what they called emergency temporary access to, uh, to the collection. And, um, and I think that, I think that, you you know, each of those things, um, was, was successful on its own terms, um, I think the library community, the research library community being able to do those things collectively um, was the only way that those that that many of those those developments could have happened. So uh, absolutely, I, I agree with you. Um it, it is an essential piece of community infrastructure, perhaps the most essential piece of community infrastructure in a lot of ways that we have today in the in the research library community.
0: Yeah, what you what you just said about um, the sort of emergency temporary access that almost makes me wonder. Um, and this again is, I don't, I don't think necessarily what you discuss in the book, but I'm just, I'm curious if that sort of temporary access or change in access to sort of information and content, if that sort of led to um, either HathiTrust or publishers or libraries to sort of change their business models, if like, they're able to like, you know, I guess, I guess like I'm thinking if, um, libraries or publishers are able to provide this temporary access and still keeping relevant or still making money or still doing whatever their goals are, um, does that sort of change what that access could look like more broadly beyond like an emergency?
1: So, um, one of the things that that happened during the pandemic and, um, you know, uh, uh, so many disruptions, uh, so much damage was done. But one of the things that happened that we really learned from is that many of the research libraries were temporarily unavailable. The The, the tangible collections, the print collections were unavailable for a period of weeks or months or more. And, you know, in certain fields of scholarship, that was going to be just profoundly disruptive, uh, you know, book, book dependent fields, especially in the, in the humanities, especially. And, um, and, and so one of the untested questions up until that point was, what happens if you don't have a print collection, but you do have a digital collection? No one would have ever thought to tell a humanist don't come to the library stacks, go to HathiTrust trust instead right I mean they Hottie trust might have been an important supplement, but it wasn't there was never a point where it was going to force a change in behavior um, and and all of a sudden that happened and I think you know anecdotally uh, there's there's a lot of faculty members, a lot of scholars, a lot of researchers who uh, you, you know really were grateful for you know that that availability and I think there were there are, uh, you know, th- th- sometimes these, uh, you know, a moment of real stress on the system actually helps to change behavior or open up opportunities for new kinds of of practices. And I think, in some ways, uh, this the the pandemic has, you know, may may have had a, a an effect in that respect. So, to your question, um, you know, I think that I think that there's a great opportunity here. For you know, rethinking what kind of access may we have in the future, and how can we how can we continue to have various kinds of digital access? Um, you know, one of the things that's that's really kind of um, sort of exploded in popularity over the last year or so is um, is this idea of what, what's sometimes called controlled digital lending. Which um, listeners may not be familiar with this, but this is a um, this is a, a mechanism in which uh, in in which as long as a print copy exists in a library and that print copy isn't circulated, the library will circulate a digital copy, a digital version of that, in its place, um, and. Uh, you know, I think there's there is uh, you know certainly there are a variety of opinions about whether this is uh, fair use or you know there's there is some litigation um, underway or or in consideration that you know may test the parameters of of this to some degree or other. But I think that you know libraries clearly have shown during the during the pandemic in particular that there's a demand for new kinds of access models, and I think you know it would be very much in publishers' interests to find ways uh, to offer m- models you know licenses products, whatever it may be that that accommodate some of those new those new needs through the institutional marketplace
0: mm-hmm. yeah, I definitely definitely agree with that, and I think that that can be um, or perhaps that's been a challenge just because like there are just there's so many different. It's, or rather, it's it's difficult to find, like, something that's, like, perfectly mission aligned between, like, the tech, between the libraries, between the information and um, publishers. But, yeah, I, I, I feel like I couldn't agree more about um, moving towards, like, a more um, open and perhaps even, uh, I don't want to say, like, cooperative, but a more, at least more collaborative um, mindset um, in this space. So I guess I'm I'm curious as to what you think would like help facilitate that. Whether it be like some, something more like infrastructure, or if it's something or yeah,
1: yeah. So so I think that I think that a lot of what we're seeing um, more broadly uh, right now is that is that there are there, there's been a huge explosion in the last ten years in various open. And free access models for um, for content. So, in the context of scholarly journal publishing, there's what's called open access, where there's you know lot, lots and lots of efforts to uh, to to make journal articles and journal journal manuscripts uh, freely and, and widely available, reusable. Um, and then in the in the sort of textbook publishing space, we've seen a sort of parallel set of initiatives, sometimes called open educational resources. Um, and in in both cases, these open initiatives were really started al- almost in some degrees uh, against the publishers. It, but I think in, in, and certainly we've seen with open access, the publishers have found ways to adopt, and some would say co-opt, open access. And I think that what we're, um, you know, I think that what we're you know i think that what we haven't really seen is the trade book publishers figure out what what kinds of models if any will make sense for for o- open access i mean we've definitely seen downward pressure on pricing through ebooks so at the consumer level like it's it's, it's you know you can you can save 10 bucks or whatever it is by buying the ebook a lot of the times, you know that that sort of thing, buying the Kindle version. Um but in terms of what kind of adaptations if any will make sense for those kinds of, you know, general interest publishers in terms of reaching a more institutional market with ebooks. Um you know, we I, I should I should acknowledge we've of course we've seen models like Overdrive, right? We've seen models that have worked in the uh, especially in the public library space a kind of lending based model, but, um, that's a little bit different than, you know, your question about sort of open or free access and what that, what that might look like. So I, I don't know exactly uh, where we'll go from here, but I, I think there's definitely still, still, uh, still a lot of opportunity for innovation.
0: Yeah, I guess, I'm. Um given uh, it's certainly a a very complex um, solution. Um, I definitely don't expect like you personally to have like the perfect answer, but I guess I'm sort of curious as to where like Ithaca fits into this whole story and sort of how, how they've, um, I guess you said that you've written a, a book about this too. So I guess I'm a little curious as to like what, what you're doing or like what Ithaca is doing sort of like in this space and how they're sort of helping shape, the feature of um, access to information at um, uh, academic institutional level.
1: Yeah, so on the Ithaca SNR side, our, our research and, and advisory work, um, we've been very active, especially with open access and to some degree open educational resources and trying to really help both the libraries as well as the publishers um, and And other kinds of vendors and software companies as well uh think about how to you know how how do we adapt um my colleague danielle Cooper um, uh just led a project looking with i believe it was ten or eleven academic and research libraries looking at how they may choose to cancel some of their subscription journal content and redirect you know potentially redirect funding towards uh towards open models so that's like a very tangible example. Um, and, you know, I think we're, I think we're seeing, um, you know, I think we're, I think we're seeing a lot of demand and interest in, you know, just at the research and and advisory level. The, The other thing that's going on inside of our organization is that, you know, the, another service we operate is the JSTOR, um, the JSTOR digital library service. And, um, and I, you know, I wrote the book about JSTOR long before I uh, came to the organization when I was still working at, at the Mellon Foundation. So it's kind of a funny, uh, a funny, I don't know if it's a homecoming exactly, but it's a funny, uh, funny uh, uh, shift. But, but with JSTOR, the organization made the folks who run JSTOR made, uh, you, know, inor- you know, went through a process of enormously increasing access to participants at the beginning of the pandemic. And you know, I think that's—I'm um, not the right person to 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 sort of speak ab- about it at any great length. But um, that's you know, I think I think for a not-for-profit organization that's you know really deeply committed to expanding access and expanding educational opportunities at the heart of our work, um, you know, I think that that kind of emergency measure taken during the pandemic is something that you know we're we're you know a lot of people are thinking hard about you know how do we uh, you know, how how do we learn from that and, and find ways to continue extending and expanding access. So we're seeing this this kind of dynamic really across across every part of the organization. And it's it's actually a really um it's an exciting time to be working on on these questions because it feels that the impact that each of us from our own part of the organization is able to have is like just, just so um tangible right now. Mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really exciting to hear um, more about or to sort of have that expectation of what will come out of like more discussions like that um, with I I guess I, I imagine that you're probably working pretty closely with like other publishers or libraries and institutions.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we're seeing, you know, the next, the next, like for example, you know, I talked about the, the project about the big deals. Well, the next project that we're, you know, a next project that we're launching is one looking at streaming media. Okay. So like during, during the pandemic, everyone, everyone got really, you know, streaming media became really, really important. And I'm not talking about Netflix. I'm talking about institutionally licensed um, models though. Though for many of us, Netflix and and the like became very, even more important as well. Um, And, uh, and so, so the question of what kind of models, as you take a service like a streaming media service and you take it out of the context of being like a like a, a hobby project or a side you know a side thing within the context of them. libraries do journals and books and everything else is like you know really the long tail of the library work, but when streaming media all of a sudden becomes twenty percent or fifty percent or seventy percent of the usage of the library, that puts all sorts of pressure on the business, all the business models, the the pricing models, the fee structures. So, you know, it's just an example. It's not exactly about open access, but it's the pandemic has raised all sorts of really important questions about, you know, how do we make, how do libraries make you know, expand access to information and do so in sustainable and responsible ways over time. And, you know, when you kind of look at that as your mission and you think about, you know, where do we need to go next? Well, you know, film and video and all of that is is certainly one of the one of the one of the next frontiers here. So, yeah, it's a very exciting time to be working on these these questions.
0: Yeah, I feel like it's interesting. You said that this book sort of came from the pitch to describe the future of libraries and it sounds like you've sort of just described that, like trying to adapt to new media and trying to figure out what new models and who to collaborate with um, in the future. So that's super exciting. I'll thank you again for this super awesome book and a great, great conversation.